0: welcome to the all of christ for all of life podcast brought to you by canon plus this week's episode is a talk from pastor steve wilkins entitled israel and the nations for more from pastor steve wilkins check out the word mp3 collection on canon plus to read this evening from genesis chapter 12 The first eight verses of this, of this chapter where we have the call of Abraham. He's called, of course, Abram at this point. So hear the word of God, Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse one. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, when Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, they departed, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they come to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Again, our Father, we give you praise that you do by your Spirit illumine our hearts and minds so that we might understand your word and believe those things that you have spoken. Help us to receive then these things, lay them up in our hearts, practice them in our lives for Jesus' sake. Amen. God's purpose from the beginning embraced the world. His purpose is to have the earth filled with his knowledge like the waters cover the sea, to fill the earth with his glory. And he created a world full of glory in the beginning and created man after his image, giving Adam and his wife Eve dominion over all the works of his hands commanding them then to live faithfully in the garden sanctuary, learning how to worship, learning how to live and labor uh, together. And then going out from there, they would then fill the earth. But, of course, you know the story. You know that what, what happened there. Satan rebelled against the Lord and sought to overthrow God's purpose by seducing Adam and Eve. So utilizing a serpent. Satan entered into the garden to tempt man to rebel. If this could be accomplished, you see, the purposes of God would be overthrown. God would not have, he would have to in justice destroy the rebels. Sin falls upon those who rebel. Remember God said, eat of every tree of the garden, eat it all. And he emphasizes the fullness of that provision. Eat until you can't eat some uh, eat and then eat some more. You know, just eat, eat it all. And uh, but he said, there's one tree you must not eat of, and that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day you eat of that tree, in that day you shall die. It's very clear. Well, of course, Satan decides to seduce Adam and Eve, he and and by that overthrow this purpose of God to fill the earth with worship, worshiping God, glorifying men. And his plan seemed to succeed. He did seduce Eve. He deceived her and Adam willfully fell. Adam turned away willfully. Adam was not deceived. We're told Paul says that Eve was deceived. Adam was not. That means that he knew what was going to happen and he let it happen. We read, shockingly, in Genesis 3 that Adam was with her, and that language there implies not that he just walked up, but had been with her all the time. He stood quietly by like a good, obedient husband, submissive husband, you know. it's what you got to have, good, submissive husband. Well, Adam abdicates his position as protector and defender, becomes the... The obedient, submissive husband allows the serpent to enter into this conversation with Eve and basically says, well, this is interesting. Let's see what happens. Go ahead, eat." And so Eve does and falls. Death enters the world. And in the midst, but in the midst of judgment, when Satan seems to have conquered, God has mercy. What Satan did not take into account was the grace of God. And so we have the revelation of God's grace coming in chapter uh, 3, verse uh, 14 and 15. Of course, there's the first, the declaration of the judgment upon the serpent. Cursed shall you be more than all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Now that tells Satan right away what his destiny is. If I say to you, you're going to bite the dust, I'm saying something other than congratulations for winning the lottery. You say, I'm, I'm, you're obviously going down. If I say that you're going to eat dirt all your life, then I'm not uh, giving you good news. God is declaring his judgment upon Satan and all who will follow him. There is no way he can be victorious. He will be destroyed. But then he restores Adam and Eve. He first of all changes their hearts, restoring them to communion with Himself so that they can be restored in worship. Once again, the most basic thing, as I'm going to repeat myself again this evening, the most basic thing we do is worship God. We are created to worship Him, glorifying Him and enjoying Him forever. The first thing that God does is change the hearts of Adam and Eve. You hear the language? I will put enmity, speaking now to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between her seed, your seed, and her seed. Now you hear the language, where is the enmity at this point after the fall? There is, Adam and Eve have both sided with the serpent. They are at enmity with God. There is enmity between Adam and Eve and God. And God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this enmity and put it between you and her. So that She who hates me now is going to love me and hate you. And that's what I'm going to do for all my people. I'll remove the enmity that is theirs by nature toward me. I'll take it away and I'll put it so that they hate you and love me. You see, that is the declaration of sovereign grace. God saves and he changes the heart's here declares what he's going to do. He changes the hearts of Adam and Eve. Then he restores their marriage. He says to the woman, I'm going to greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you will bring forth children. You see, first of all, she was dead, cut off, not allowed to have children, apparently. God says, no, I'm going to. you're going to have children. You will be able to be fruitful and multiply. You will also have great sorrow with that. You're going to have pain, not only the pain of birthing the child, but the sorrows that come with children. And that doesn't undermine the fact that the Bible says children are a great blessing. They are indeed, but they're also a headache. And they, are, they cause pain sometimes. And some of you have known it. All of us who have older children have gone through painful seasons and that's the way it is. That's, that's life. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be reminded of your sin and the pit from which you were dug. You never get to forget that, that you don't deserve the good things that God gives you. And it's important that we remember that we, by nature, deserve wrath and curse all our days. But here's good news. Here's the grace of God. You will have children. And in the midst of that, you will be mindful of how gracious that is that you have children. So you'll be thankful in the midst of the pain. In the midst of the sorrows, you're going to still be thankful. And so, godly women have that terrible pain of childbirth, but then as soon as the baby's born, it's almost like that's all forgotten for the joy that a child is born into the world. Then he restores the marriage and he does it in this way Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, understand the language there. It doesn't mean that she's going to desire her husband sexually. Uh, I, at least in my view it doesn't mean that i know some commentators say that i think the parallel line tells you what he's talking about here what has happened is that their roles were reversed because of Adam's abdication he took the role of the silent submissive woman basically let his wife do the interacting with the serpent he abdicated his headship of his of his wife his faithful rule over her as a faithful shepherd he abdicated He let her stand without protection. Now God restores this relationship, and he tells Eve, he, your husband, will rule over you. Now, here's the problem. You're going to desire to rule over him. That's the part of sin. The same phrase is used later on when God addresses Cain, that sin uh, is crouching at the door, desiring you, but you must Rule over it. He uses the same phrase. And clearly it's, you are going to want dominion. You're going, this, the problem with women is that they want to take dominion. The problem with men is they want to give it. So it works out wonderfully a lot of times, doesn't it? So that the wife sees that her husband's not doing anything. The husband doesn't want to do anything. The wife says, all right, I'll make the decision. He goes, well, that's good, hon. And then he says, and then he gets to sit back in the critic's seat. This is great. The wife makes the decision, and you get to sit back and second guess. And say, well, it wasn't, wasn't been what i had done. But you know, you know best, I'm sure. <clears throat> that wasn't my view, but you know, you always think I don't know anything. I just figured, I didn't think that'd work out, but you know. Yes, we, well, we didn't get the critic, old maid critic seat. It's a very irresponsible and sinful thing, but that's the way men live lots of times because of sin. See, it's the remnant of that. You want to give up responsibility, and women want to take it. And they'll take it if they have to. And so there's the restoration of the marriage. And then he restores Adam's labor, of course, is the last thing. um, And reminds him that he must not heed the voice of his wife. He must exercise leadership. And because he has heeded that voice, the ground is going to be affected. His labor is going to be more difficult. But he will eat. God is going to bless his work. So there is blessing in the midst of this. This is not cursing. The ground receives the consequence of the of the actions, and there are going to be consequences to the sin. But God restores Adam and Eve back into His communion. They're going to worship Him again and love Him, and be, and as they worship Him, they'll learn to live together faithfully and learn. And Adam will learn to work, and Eve will learn to be His helper as they were originally created. So Genesis three shows us God restores His original purpose. That purpose is not put aside. God restores it. He curses the serpent and promises victory over the serpent. And when God speaks of the defeat of the serpent, he speaks of the single individual who will be like the champion who will come from the woman and crush the head of the serpent. And God's people will conquer through him. So that in him, Paul can say to the church, God shall crush Satan under your feet shortly. Why? Because you're the body of Christ. And God will give you, as the faithful people of God, victory over the serpent as well, in and through Christ Jesus, who who has obtained that victory, of course, for us by his work, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so the purpose of God to fill the earth with his glory through the faithful image bearers has not changed. It will be fulfilled by his gracious power and the work of the Spirit, based upon the work of Christ. So but what you see then is throughout the Old Testament, there's going to be enmity between the two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And throughout the Old Testament, you see Satan seeking to destroy the seed of the woman. It's always frustrated, but he keeps acting to do that. In Genesis 4, he acts through Cain, and Cain kills the seed of the woman, Abel. But God raises up Seth, and men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. After that, Genesis 6, he seduces the sons of, of, of God, To marry, intermarry into the daughters of men, intermarry with covenant breakers, and brings the curse again upon the world. So, but God delivers Noah and his family, preserving a faithful man and his family through the waters of the flood. And there's a new beginning. Noah's like a second Adam. He comes out, and God gives him the mandate once again, and he begins anew. In Genesis 12, God moves his representative, Pharaoh, we didn't, uh, I'm sorry, Satan. Uh, uses Pharaoh to attack the bride of Abram, and God protects her. In Genesis 20, Abimelech, again an agent of, of the serpent, attacks the bride of Abraham once more, and God protects her. And then, of course, it happens again with Isaac's bride. Another Abimelech does it with him. And then uh, in Genesis 27, Isaac, who has now become hardened in sin, his eyes and heart are dead, uh, not dead, but blinded. And so he can't see well. He's lost all discernment. He opposes his own seed in Jacob, and God delivers him through His the faithful work of Rebekah. God delivers the seed. And then in Exodus 1, you can see it again. You see it frustrating, God frustrating the purpose of, are the efforts of Satan through Pharaoh, who again attacks the seed, seeking to kill all the boy babies of Israel that God preserves, Moses. And then in Exodus 2-12, through Pharaoh again oppresses the seed. God delivers them through the blood of the lamb, crushing the heads of Pharaoh's seed in the process. And Joshua, the cursed seed of Satan, the cursed people of Canaan, Seek to destroy Israel. God gives his people victory. And the same occurs through the book of Judges, indeed, throughout the entire Old Testament until Christ comes. And then, again, you see the, the, the serpent seek to destroy the seed by killing all the boy babies in Bethlehem. But the child escapes. So that they don't weep. Don't weep. Because the child has escaped. That's the key. And throughout the Gospels, Satan, through Herod and Pontius Pilate and apostate Jewish leadership, attacked the seed and finally succeeded in killing him. Great victory, finally, right? They finally kill this Messiah. And they only learn that his—that uh, Satan learns after destroying Christ that his head has been crushed In the process, he has simply sealed his own doom and guaranteed the fulfillment of God's gracious purpose, which was there from the beginning. Now, you see, this purpose, remember, from the beginning, always embraced the world. When God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, it was not to confine his grace into one family, but exactly the opposite— He chose Abraham's family to be the priestly nation, the representatives of the entire world, the instrument through whom salvation would come to all the nations. They were to be the people who would be light, the light of the world and show forth the praises of the Lord to all the nations. And notice these promises then, now to chapter 12 where we read it. Notice the promises of God given to Abraham. He's going to be given, first of all, a land. Get out of Ur, he says he calls him, get out of your country from your kindred, from your father's house to a land that I will show you. He's going to be given this land. That will be his home, his sanctuary, the sanctuary for his his family, for his descendants, that place of dominion where they learn how to worship and live. Canaan is described then as the garden of the Lord. It's like the garden of the Lord. It's as if now God is going to restore, give them a garden place where they learn once again how to live, learn obedience, and from there carry forth the gospel to all the nations. He's going to be made a great nation, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. Now, notice this doesn't mean he's going to become like the modern nation state. When we say nation, we think armies invading people that irritate you, bombing them to the Stone Age, that kind of stuff. no. He doesn't mean he's going to become like a modern nation state. We have, we must not, uh, we have to forget what characterizes nations today and think of the promise. Remember how Abram would have viewed this promise. All the nations of the world have fallen into apostasy through the Tower of Babel. All the nations have been now, in a sense, cut off, not totally. But they have brought down upon themselves the curse of God. A new nation must be created now. And thus, Israel is going to become the representative replacement nation for all the nations. And this is indicated by the fact, for example, that they're going to have 70 elders. And they're supposed to give annually this great sacrifice where 70 bulls are going to be sacrificed. Why the number 70? Of course, you know that that's the number of nations in in Genesis Chapter 10, in the table of the nations, that's how many nations are listed. That's the, that's the whole world. They are the priests for the world. They stand representatively before God for the whole world as those who are, the, who are to lead the nations into obedience again. And even later on, Jesus picks up the same thing. He sends out 70 disciples. This is the work of the new Israel of God. We also, as the church now, in a sense, you see, are the priests of the world. And when we gather for worship, we worship in the name of the world. And that's why our faithful worship, very often God blesses and spares those of our neighbors around us when his people honor him. He spares those around them. Well, that's what happens. The church is the new Israel of God. We are now the representative replacement nation for all the world where all the nations can now gather. Well, Abraham, Abram is that way. He's going to be given a great name. We read in verse 2, your name, and, and God says, I will bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And again, we are to remember how you get the great name, not by rebellion, as at Babel, which has just happened in chapter 11, not by rebellion, not by seeking uh, to do something by power and force, depending upon your own ingenuity and works, but rather by trusting and obeying, by faith and obedience. Abraham's name, Abram's name here means exalted father. He's going to get another name. It's going to be, that's a great name. He's going to be given a greater name later on. Abraham, that is father of a multitude. And it is this name. That Abram will have to bear by faith. You see, how many children did he have? You can think about Abraham going around and people introducing himself, and they say, and you know, this is Shalom, Shalou, and who are you? And I say, This is uh, my name is Abraham. They go, Oh my. So how many children do you have? He goes, Well, I don't have any yet. What kind of name is that? (laughs) Father of a multitude, you had no children? Uh, Not not yet. And how old are you again? (laughs) Well, you see, he had to bear this name by faith. He had to walk by faith and not by sight. God had promised you will have children like the stars in multitude, like the sand of the sea. And Abraham never saw that many, but he knew he believed God, we're told. And God counted it unto him as righteousness. You see, Abram was a faithful man and he walked by faith and had to carry even his name in that way. The concept then of blessing signifies the bestowal of all the blessings and benefits of the covenant. He's going to have all good things and protection from all evil. He will be given grace and enduring happiness and peace. It's far more than merely saying, I'm going to let you live. That's bigger than that. Blessing involves participation in that life which is from above, being included in the communion and fellowship of the Trinity. You're going to have the blessing. I'm going to make you to. Not only will you enjoy the blessing, but because of the blessing, you are going to be a blessing. And so he goes forward in verses 2 and 3. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. The calling of Abram is not merely to have a happy, full, peaceful life. A joyful, contented existence. But he is also going to be one who will be the instrument of blessing to the world. He's delivered out of idolatry and made now an instrument of great blessing to those. He will be a blessing to others, and the blessing will come to them in terms of how they respond to him. And, of course, when you say, how do you respond to Abraham?" You're talking about the covenant God who's identified himself with Abraham. How do you respond to the covenant God that Abram belongs to? Well, those who bless him will be blessed, And that one who curses him will be cursed. Notice the plural and the singular. I think it it might be important. In fact, I'm convinced it's important. The plural indicates there are going to be many who bless you, and there are going to be a few who who curse you. But the, the vast majority are going to be blessed through the great sea of Abraham. Abraham is going to be the focal point of the world's attention, and this is why. We, we need to learn. The world cannot ignore the faithful if we are faithful. Now, they can ignore us if we, if we turn away and apostatize and become hypocritical and hard of heart and unbelieving. They can ignore us. But the faithful always have an impact on the world. Always. We are the instruments of blessing and cursing as the children of Abraham. And God pledges himself to protect and uphold Abram so that his purposes will be accomplished through him. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. The nations may desire to ignore you, but they will not be able to do so. Their own prosperity depends upon how they respond to you. And of course, to everything that Abram represents, he will be the instrument of salvation to the world. Verse 3 And in, in you, all the nations, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abraham and his descendants will flow salvation to the world. So his people, his family, Israel, is going to be a new humanity. It's going to be like another second Adam, through whom the blessings of the covenant will flow to all the nations. This is a promise of comprehensive worldwide salvation. And this promise begins to be fulfilled even in Abram's life in a small measure. And you get a little indicated indication of it here in this passage that we read. Look at verse five, as God describes Abram and his and the, and the those who come out of Haran with him. He left Ur of the Chaldees, went to Haran, and apparently until his father died. And then after his father's death, he moved from Haran into Canaan. And when he leaves Haran, look at what we read. Verse 5. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered. And then you have this phrase, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. Now that's a peculiar phrase, in in uh, in Hebrew, and it's important, I think, and I think significant, because what you have there is a statement of, that's not, you, you see, the way it reads here in our translation, it sounds like th- those were people he bought, those were part of his slaves. Literally, the phrase me, uh, reads, and the souls they had won or had made in Haran. Now you see, commonly, slaves are included among your possessions. So if I have slaves, I've got my, my wife, my sons, and my possessions, which are not just the chairs and tables and, you know, pool table, all that. It's the, it's, it's, it's the slaves as well. That would be a common way of referring to them. You don't normally refer to purchasing slaves. In fact, I, there's not another place, I don't think, in the Bible where this phrase is used to refer to the purchase of slaves. It says, the souls that they had made in Haran. The souls that they had won in Haran is one way you could read that. Commonly, slaves are included in the possession. The verb here, made, is not the word that you use to purchase slaves. The making of souls is only mentioned in Haran. Whereas if the purchase of slaves is intended, there'd be no reason to to exclude those that were purchased elsewhere, in Ur or other places. You see what I'm pointing to. It may be that this is a reference to converts, those who had become adherents to the faith of Abram. These were the ones who came with Abram and his household out of Haran, who apparently had been converted to the faith in Haran while Abram was in Haran. Later on, we know that there were some outsiders included in Abram's household. Eliezer of Damascus is his heir. Wait a minute. How could he be an heir of the faithful Abram if he's not a believer it's almost inconceivable that Abram would make a man who was a pagan his heir, but that's Eliezer of damascus it's not a, it's not a, that's not even one born in his house or i mean that's not even one that was part of abram's family he is part of the household of Abram, but he's become that apparently now you see we also uh have some others that I'll mention later on. Abram apparently had witness to those around him in Haran, and thus, like Israel later on, coming out of Egypt with a mixed multitude—not only Israel, Israelites, Jewish people, but others who had joined themselves to the Jews. Abram comes out of Haran as a mixed multitude, and this a large household is the way is the implication that we have as you go on and read about Abram's household. Well, now look at Abram's mission strategy, if we can call it that, in verse 6. Abram passes through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of More. Shechem was considered the center of the land. And some commentators suggest that the language here in verse 6 indicates that Shechem may have been the location of, of a place where pagans already had a shrine. It is the place in Shechem, the article is mentioned there. Well, if that's so then what Abram does here amounts to a public challenge. And I would say even if it isn't so, even if there wasn't a major pagan shrine at Shechem, this still amounts to a public challenge to the paganism of Canaan. Abram sets up an altar, a memorial, a place of worship to the living God. And by doing that declares to to all around him that this land does not belong to them. It is Jehovah's Land. It's Yahweh's land. It's the Creator's land. It's His land, and this is where and He ought to be worshipped here. And there in Shechem he proclaims the truth of God. The word More comes from the verb meaning to teach or instruct. And thus you could actually read this the oak of teaching, or the teacher's oak. That's, That's what it was called. And apparently, it was called that because that's what Abram did there. He set up that altar at Moray, and that's where he taught. That's where he taught. He, he taught. He taught them there. Uh, it was the teacher's oak, and this oak becomes a prominent tree in Israel's history. It's the place later on where Jacob buries all the idols of Laban, it's the burial ground of the pagan idols. It's the place where Joshua sets a memorial stone after the covenant renewed with Israel. It's recognized as the sanctuary of God, that oak of teaching, the teacher's oak. The land is Abram's and his descendants claimed by the word of God, by the very promise of God. And this altar testifies to this fact. And it's significant that Abram didn't view it sufficient merely to have this understanding and this faith in his heart internally. He makes this a public issue. You see? He builds a worship place. The altar being this place where God is worshipped. It's a public witness to Abram's internal and invisible faith. And he wants it to be public so that people will see and ask questions. Abram, what's this? He goes, well, that's that's where we worship Yahweh, the true God that's what it means, and he's teaching about him all along here. This is a public witness that Abram belongs to the Creator, the true and the great living God. It is a public challenge to the false gods of the land. This action is analogous to Noah. You see, after he gets off off the ark, he builds an altar and worships God there, dedicating the whole new world to the living God. Abram is like a new Noah now. He's come into this Land that's really now one of the most cursed places on earth. This is the land of Canaan's descendants. Canaan would be cursed. So here's Canaan's land. And Abram is declaring, yes, right now. Right now, it's, it's pretty corrupt. But God has purposes for this land. And we know, yeah, just like he has purposes for all the world. And God is going to demonstrate his purposes for Canaan's land by showing great blessing as time goes on. And judgment, always mercy Is mixed with judgment, but there's going to be judgment and cleansing coming to Canaan's land. But blessing is going to be there, too. And all the people ought to repent and come to the living God who does judge and save. And so the altar stands thus as a testimony of the coming judgment, as well as the gracious purposes that God has for the land. The land is going to be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And the land is God's land and therefore will be filled with people who acknowledge him and worship him and call upon his name publicly. So this is publicly declared by Abram in the midst of the Canaanites. He does the same thing at Bethel. So he goes on down to the south, the bottom end of the land in verse eight. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west And Ai on the east, and he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Again, Abram builds an altar declaring the presence of God and the word of God and calls upon the name of the Lord. That's that phrase that throughout the Bible refers to prayer, praise, worship, public worship. It is the public declaration of worshiping him. It's the public declaration that we don't belong to ourselves We are the purchased possessions of the God of all the earth. And we come to trust and glorify his holy name. To call upon the name of the Lord then is to look to him for life, for salvation, and to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's that which predominantly marks out the people of God. And it's that which distinguishes us from the world. Remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 14, verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat up bread, and do not call upon the Lord, call on the Lord. The the wicked don't do that. That which marks out God's people preeminently is that they are the people who call upon the name of the Lord. They are the ones who worship him faithfully. And I think we're being told a very important point that is, uh, it seems to be amplified in the rest of the scriptures. Worship is the necessary prerequisite to reformation. It is significant that, in contrast to Cain and in contrast to Nimrod, Abram is characterized by building what? He didn't build a city like Cain sought to do. <clears throat> He didn't build a tower that would reach up to heaven like Nimrod sought to direct. What does he build? He builds a miniature mountain of the Lord. That's what the altar was. He builds a place of public worship. How is, how is it that the land, that the world will be subdued? How is it that we're going to conquer and have dominion and all the things that God says? That his purpose is for his people. It's not by force. And it's not by our own efforts. It's by totally by the grace of God. So we build the altar to acknowledge that very thing. What do we what's the preeminent thing that marks us out? We are the people who worship God. Worship precedes dominion and lays the foundation for it. And indeed, without it there will be no dominion like God is speaking of in Genesis one verse twenty eight. That holy, not you see, again, that's another word I think that's taken on a lot of bad ideas. We think dominion means I get to wear big rings and everybody gets to kiss my hands. But in the Bible, what was the king to be like? Was he to be this obnoxious, haughty one who went around saying, uh, give that boy some money. Uh, Take that one's head off. Uh, I don't like the way he looks. Is that the way the king is? No, he's the shepherd. He's the humble shepherd's servant, like Jesus. That's the king. And what are you called to be? You're going to be kings? How? Huh? Haughty or obnoxious and arrogant? No. Going around bossing everybody? No. Serving them, sacrificially, humbly, speaking the truth, correcting them, and being patient to continue to proclaim the truth and live justly and mercifully to all around you. That's ruling. And that's how we bring the nations into subjection by the blessing of God. And so Abram understood that worship is primary, and he first establishes true worship throughout the land, symbolically walking through the land—a symbolic conquest, of course—but establishing these worship, these places of worship in the land. He understood that worship comes first; then comes the conquest. And then you see you're in a position to look to God for blessing as he does in chapter 14 and routes Chedorlaomer and all the armies coming down through raiding the land. Worship always precedes dominion. Worship is central then to our callings and to history. It orients us properly. It humbles us. It reminds us that we're not gods. We are creatures redeemed by Him. We're not wise. We must be taught by Him. We are not self-sufficient. We must be fed by Him. If I don't have food from heaven, I die. So Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no life in you. There's no life in you apart from me. All life comes from Him. We are not self-sufficient people, and our worship teaches us that, you see? So that every Lord's Day... We come together, sing his praises, feed upon his word, and feed upon the supper he gives us. Worship reminds us of our mission. We're not here simply to have a good time. Now, you better have a good time, because that's what you, you are called, to enjoy yourself and enjoy the living God. So when I say you're not here simply to have a good time, that doesn't mean you have the right to mope around and wring your hands and worry about all the things you just heard on the news. In fact, I think it's disobedient and unfaithful for you to do that. If you want to watch the news, fine. If you want to read a newspaper, good, that's fine. But if it spoils your dinner, that's wrong. If it makes you wring your hands and you can't go to sleep at night, you know what you need to do? Close your newspaper and read your Bible. Turn off your television and read the Bible and call up a good friend and say, remind me of the mighty works of Jehovah so that you can be oriented right. That's why worship is so central. That's why it's so essential that you not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some in our day who think their own families are sufficient for them. It's a big mistake. We must gather as the family in the presence of the father and our elder brother and the great comforter and be taught and served by Him so that we can be strengthened and give ourselves back to Him as living sacrifices for the whole week. Abram received, he believed God. He received His word of truth. And even though the Canaanites were still in the land, you remember it's mentioned here in the passage, oh yes, the Canaanites were still in the land. Yeah, the Canaanites governed everything. He's one guy. Uh, He's a significant man. He's got a lot of people with him. He's got a pretty sizable host in his household, that's for sure, and he's a wealthy man, but he's only one in the midst of this whole land of idolatry. And yet what is he doing? Wringing his hands? Trying to figure out how he can get media attention? Trying to find a Canaanite congressman he can befriend and help get in office where the guy will pass good laws? No, he's worshiping, and he's preaching, and he's living faithfully in the midst of these people. And God is blessing. It was his public worship that made that public witness. He didn't just worship the Lord in his heart. Surely he did, but he didn't just do that. He didn't just worship the Lord in his tent. Surely he did, but that's not all. He did it publicly so that he would stand as a public witness against the idolatry all around him. And that's precisely one of the things that this world needs to see us do. More and more publicly, openly worshiping the living God. It is essential that you never forget the Sabbath day. Well, this is what we do. Every Lord's Day, we're imitating our father, Abraham. We're doing the same thing. And the Lord was faithful and blessed his word. So, worship without embarrassment Celebrate his work. Rejoice in his grace. Call men to join us in this glory and grace, just like Abraham, and the land will be conquered. Well, Abram's worship and witness was blessed by God. The Scripture gives indicators that there were quite a few Gentiles who believed the gospel as proclaimed by Abraham. Not only did Abraham leave Haran with a group of converts, but when chetel raids Canaan in chapter 14, we learn that there are already a number of Canaanites that have already come and joined him in covenant. Look at verse 13 of chapter 14. <clears throat> it's talking about uh, Chedorlaomer. In verse 12, took uh, uh, Lot, Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the uh, by the Terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Esco and brother of Aner. and they were allies with Abram. Now, when you read that, you automatically think they were mil- sure they were military allies. He had formed kind of a military alliance with some of the guys there in the land. And that's how he, he, he could call upon them because they'd agreed to help protect each other. Well, that may be so. That may be so. But I'm not sure at all that that's what this verse means. Mamre the Amorite is with Abram along with his brothers Eshcol and Aner. And the phrase that is translated, they were allies with Abram, actually reads, literally, they were possessors of the covenant of Abram. They were possessors of the covenant. They were partakers of the covenant of Abram. Now I guess you could interpret that, that they'd entered in the covenant with Abram. That's possible. But here again, I'm not sure there's any reason to think that in fact they probably have been converted as well. And they are now partakers of Abram's covenant. They're in this covenant that Abram is in. They also are worshipers. They are now one and brothers with this one who's come into their land. And they have become worshipers of the living God as well, and now become partakers of his covenant. Later still, Abimelech enters into covenant with Abram, and I think it should be seen more. He recognizes the blessing of Yahweh upon him. In fact, he uses that term, the covenant name for God later still another abimelech seeks to enter into covenant with uh, after after uh, facing isaac and seeing isaac's the blessing of god on isaac later still remember joseph goes down into egypt and pharaoh recognizes the blessing of the lord upon joseph and puts joseph in position over the land basically makes him co-pharaoh there wasn't such an office but almost basically puts him up there and says you just tell him what to do I, I don't know of anybody that has the Spirit of God like you. Never seen it before. And apparently becomes converted himself. You say, well, come on now, don't go so far. Well, I, I knew. I understand we have to be careful, but Jacob blesses Pharaoh. In Genesis 47, he gives him blessing. I, I think you have to look at that. And that gives some indicator of why in Exodus 1, it's, so, it's kind of shocking. Another Pharaoh who came up who did not know Joseph. Now, what does that mean? What does the word no mean in the Bible? Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. The word no doesn't mean you can recognize her face in a lineup. Right? It implies an intimate love relationship. This Pharaoh surely knew who Joseph was. It hasn't been that long. He, Joseph was one of the great leaders of Egyptian history though they apparently wiped out his name pretty quickly. But some scholars think that some of the sphinxes and other things, those are pictures of Joseph, they think. He clearly was a great leader and preserved the country. He would have been well known. What's the point of saying there's a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph? Was he just a Or Was he kept in a bag off in the corner in a closet by his mom and daddy and never gotten any news? How could that be? What's the point? You're being told he hated Joseph. That's why he wants to destroy Joseph's people, unlike the previous Pharaoh, who received the blessing of Jacob. So I think we need to read. Certainly we can't say for certain. But you see what God is like? With a God like we have? And how broad his mercies are? And how he is embracing the world? Is it unusual? That, that men and leaders of pagan nations would actually bow down and worship him? No. In fact, it seems that that's exactly what we have. In addition to these Gentiles who were converted, perhaps, we have also these Gentiles who fear God and support the family of Abram. So you have Melchizedek. Where did this guy come from? He's this righteous king who lives in Salem, which is the old name for the, old, for the city of Jerusalem which is the city that God later on puts his name. Why? Because that's the old place of righteousness and peace. Great Melchizedek lived there. So God chooses Jerusalem and may well have chosen it just to remind people, I have, my, I have the righteous kings, my righteous kings live in my city. They commune with me. Melchizedek, the great righteous priest king of Salem, Jethro the Midianite, who was a priest of God, And Moses marries one of his daughters. You have Uriah, the Hittite, fighting valiantly for Israel. The Hittite? You mean of the Hittites with the capital H? Those Hittites? Yeah, that's Uriah. He's he's converted. Join the army of the Lord. Of course, you have all the women. Rahab, the Canaanite, who performs that marvelous, faithful, gracious work of spirit of preserving the spies of God's people. Ruth, the Moabite, both of which become mothers of the seed. God embraces the world. God's love embraces the world. So it is throughout the Old Testament. It's plain that God's purpose of redemption is not restricted to Israel. Never has been. Never was to be intended. Israel was the priestly nation, the chosen seed set apart by God to represent him to the nations, and show forth his mercy and grace. And by the way they lived, by the grace they showed and the kindness to the stranger that was unheard of in the ancient world. But God keeps emphasizing it. You be kind to the stranger. Show hospitality to the stranger. Welcome the stranger. In the ancient world, the stranger was suspected and hated and despised. He got no rights. You could do just about anything to a stranger, but Israel could not. Why? Because they're the people of the God who embraces the aliens and those who in their sin rebel against him. He comes in his mercy and gathers them back. And you must be like me, God says. And they must live justly with mercy. And so they followed those wonderful laws that God gave them. And what was the point of that? God says, you're to be my model nation. You're to show everybody what a gracious, uh, what wisdom I give to you in these laws. So in Deuteronomy 4 Uh, Moses says, I have taught you statutes and judgments, this is the Lord commanded me, so that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. They shall see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, Jesus said. That's what this means. And so therefore be careful to observe them. This is your wisdom. They're, you're in the sight of the, all the peoples who will hear about these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people for what great nation is there that has a God, that has God so near to it as Yahweh, our God, is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law, which I set before you this day? Why were they to be so careful about applying? So they could be models city set on a hill showing forth the wisdom and the mercy and the justice of God in a la- in a world that was filled with wickedness selfishness idolatry cruelty and injustice and oppression here was a people who were to be just and merciful kind hospitable and yet not in- not indulgent they had principle they had laws that were righteous and just, and were good for you when you kept them. They were given the great promises of the ingathering of the Gentiles along with this. Of course, you remember, God said, all the families of the earth will be blessed, he told Abraham, Abram, and then after Abraham's, uh, uh, Abraham's obedience in sacrificing or doing what God said with Isaac, which was, he told him to sacrifice him, well, Abram Abraham almost did, you remember, and the angel stopped him. Well, God then renews the promise and listen to it. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The Psalms are filled with the same idea that God is embracing the nations and the prophets pick up the same theme. So Isaiah says it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and be exalted above the hills and all the nations will flow into it. And many people will come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between nations and rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's the salvation that comes. It's a very concrete salvation that has concrete consequences in the nations. It's going to be a restoration of paradise in a sense. And so Isaiah uses that imagery of Eden to describe the blessings that are going to flow to the nations. The curse is going to be progressively reversed by the grace of God through the gospel as it spreads through the world. The world will not be perfect. And Isaiah doesn't describe a perfect world, does he? There's still death there. But he says, well, the blessedness of this. Perfection awaits the, cons- the consummation, but the world is going to be progressively leavened and Christianized, the world where, a world where every nation acknowledges the kingship of Christ and enjoys the blessings of the covenant, and thus God's grace is greater than all our sin. And Paul says, and it will indeed cause a restoration of the whole cosmos, because God loves the cosmos. He loves the world. He is the God of grace and mercy, who delights in mercy, who delights in giving life, and who is very reluctant to judge, though he will. He does not delight in the death of the wicked, though he will judge them. He does not delight. He delights in mercy, because he's the God of life, and the God of communion, and the God of love. And so at Pentecost, we see the reversal of Babel, where all the nations are representatives of all the nations are there, of the Jewish people. And then God pours out His Spirit, and all of them here, all of them understand the message. Whereas at Babel, nobody could understand anybody else. But here now, where the nations were divided through rebellion, God brings them together through His Son. By the outpouring of the Spirit, He reunites the nations, overcoming, undoing the judgment of, of Babel. National distinctions are not obliterated. Those people still went away, Cretans and Arabs and all kinds of things. They went away with their national distinctions. But there's a glorious unity in Christ Jesus. And Israel's role was to be faithful, to trust and obey, to worship with all their heart and soul, to hold forth the word of life to the nations around them, being like a city set on a hill, like the great city of refuge, where all the nations could run to it and receive the bomb of Gilead and the, and the healing of their wounds in that great city and be, and be a house of prayer for all the nations. Remember what Jesus does when the temple becomes a place of, of, of cheating and stealing and all of that. He said this is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And he's very offended that the Jews and priests have allowed the temple... <coughs> to become a place of merchandise, dishonest merchandise at that. They were to be the priestly people, self-conscious in their mission to call the nations to repentance and faith in the living God. But you know the story. The history of Israel is largely one of great failure at this point. Rather than being the servants of the nations, they became arrogant, proud. They exalted themselves over the nations. They looked down upon the nations. They called them dogs. And that's why Jesus is so offended with the leadership of Israel and the Pharisees. And he denounces them so vehemently. Why? They were ignoring the covenant purposes of God. They were ignoring the privileges that God had given them and their calling to be the priests of the nations and the teachers of the nations. And in that way, the rulers of the nations. They were ignoring all of that. And ultimately, because they refused to repent at the son's word God pours out this devastating judgment upon them in the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. But you see what God did? He raised up a church, which is the new Israel of God, his holy temple. He raised up a new humanity, the second Adam, faithful second Adam, the body of Christ, the new and faithful people, the shining city set on a mountain that came down from heaven in Revelation 21, that Jerusalem from above, that Paul says, which is the mother of us all. The heavenly Jerusalem, which is the joy of the whole earth. By the power of the Spirit, God works in such a way in the church that the gates of hell, Jesus says, will not prevail against it. Now, understand that image. You know the way I used to read that? Probably the way you used to read it. I hope you're not reading it that way tonight. But I used to read it as if the church was this fortress, had big thick gates, and Satan and hell is banging against it, banging against those gates, but they're not gonna fall. I mean, everybody's in there shivering every time they bang it gets, oh my goodness oh, Hang on to each other, y'all, oh and then boom, boom, boom. But the gates stand, and the church survives. That's not the picture, is it? Whose gates are being attacked? The gates of hell. Who's attacking? It's all y'all. It's the people of God. It's the church. Jesus says the gates of hell, all the powers of hell, will not be able to stand against my faithful people. When they worship me, when they love their wives and their children, when they work faithfully in their callings, When they show mercy to one another and to their neighbors, loving their neighbors as themselves, Satan has no chance. The gates of hell cannot stand against the church. The promise of God to Abraham will not fall to the ground. History is the record of salvation, the salvation of the world, as our Savior indicated in John 3. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. What's the purpose? That the world through Him might be saved. Is that going to happen? Is there any doubt? You mean you say? Well, you mean everybody's going to be saved? No, it doesn't say. It didn't say. We know there were going to be people sent to hell. But at the end of the day, we're going to stand back and say, "Lord, God of heaven and earth, your mercy has saved the world." And the language should not be diminished by the fact that there will be some in hell. There will be. But the emphasis of the scriptures is that grace is greater than all our sin, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And God loves and saves the world. As we live faithfully, distinctly, as we're faithful in our calling, and as we do those things, worshiping Him, God blesses. We are the light of the world, Jesus says. By virtue of He's the light of the world, by virtue of being joined to Him, His body, we are the light of the world. And therefore, if the world is filled with darkness, Whose fault is it? You think, yeah, it's the Democrats. Madeline Murray O'Hare and no Democrats. If we don't do something about those people, ain't ever going to see nothing happen. Need to elect a good Republican to be a president. Then we'd see the millennium come, wouldn't we? I hope by now you (laughs) you know better than that. We've seen a lot of Republicans and they don't bring in anything close to the millennium. Salvation doesn't come. If the world is dark, there's one simple solution. You be faithful, and the darkness will be dispelled. You worship Him with joy and gladness, the darkness will be dispelled. Love your wife. Be the man in your house. Lead your children. Love them. Teach them. Discipline them. Train them. Nurture your family and lead them righteously, and the darkness will be dispelled. Be faithful in your job. Be honest. Work hard. Build up the confidence of other men in you that you're a man of your word and the darkness will be dispelled. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Go out with joy and gladness and just love your neighbor as yourself and the darkness will be dispelled. Eat, drink and be merry and the darkness will be dispelled. You don't have to buy a program or have a long seminar or anything else. It's pretty basic. And that's what we're called to do to see the Lord dispel the darkness that covers the earth. By his word, let there be light. Let's pray. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out more from Pastor Steve Wilkins in the Word MP3 Collection on Canon Plus.